Welcome to Charlotte Readers Podcast, where books and writing topics are center stage and where authors give voice to the written words. I'm Landis Wade, and on behalf of my co-host, Hannah LaRue and Sarah Archer, we thank you for listening. The Charlotte Readers Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network. Listen to your city at queencitypodcastnetwork.com. Hey listeners, this is your co-host Sarah Archer. Before we get into Landis's interview today, I wanted to let you know that he and I are releasing a new book that we co-wrote that's now available for pre-order wherever you like to get your books. It's called Death by Podcasting, and it's a fun murder mystery novella with a lot of tongue-in-cheek literary and podcasting references. Jennifer Ruff, who's a USA Today bestselling author who we've had on the show before, gave it a read and she said, step into the world of podcast production with this clever comedic mystery where an impending crime keeps you guessing until the final revelation. We'll have more information about the book in our newsletters and up on our website, so if this sounds up your alley, we encourage you to check it out, because that's a great way to help support the podcast. Thank you, and now enjoy Landis's interview. In this episode 361, we feature Stephen Iowanu, author of Yesteryear. Ashley Warwick, author of The Arrangement, says, Yesteryear is a magical, magnificent novel strung on the threads of a real man's quest to fight evil, save the day, and lift the world from the clutches of the Great Depression. There is no way to read this book and not find yourself moved to tears. I absolutely loved it. And I agree with Ashley. I loved it too. Steve, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you for having me. Yeah, and congratulations on the publication of Yesteryear. Thank you. Yeah, it's uh, it was a fun read. I, I want to get into that in, in a little bit here. But first, I want to talk a little bit about you. When we met, uh, I think we met up at uh, Appalachian State. There was a book fair up there, and we talked a little bit, and I found out that you had um, gotten your Master in Fine Arts and Writing uh, at Queens in Charlotte, uh, right here in the Queen City, and I was just wondering, um, how did that help you along your writing journey? It was a huge influence on me, um, and probably the best decision I ever made in my writing career. Up until that point, I had been writing for Oh, 30 years um, and not getting any real traction. You know, every once in a while I publish a short story, but, you know, I, like everybody else, I had two or three novels that, that didn't go anywhere in the drawer and a short story collection in the drawer. And I thought, you know, Steve, after about 30 years, man, maybe this isn't cut out. For, <laughs> maybe you should try something else, you know, go bowling or something. Uh, but uh, you know how it is. You can't stop writing. It's something that we do. And uh, I always wanted to get better and improved. And I started looking around for MFA programs uh, to see, you know, kind of my last swing at this. And I stumbled across Queens. I hadn't heard of the program before, to be honest with you. But I liked what they said uh, when I talked to Fred Lebron, um, the program director. And he said, the only thing I can promise you is you'll graduate um, with a network of writers to help you continue developing. And that really resonated with me because those 30 years of writing of rejection, I was pretty much writing in isolation with not that support group or a trusted group of friends who you can share writer writing with honestly. And I did um, emerge from that. And you read the blurb from Ashley and she's part of my network. She mm. is, uh, was not only my instructor at Queens, but she's part of the writer's group that um, I've been in 
for since since Queens. Yeah. So it was really a, a big turning point in my career. Um, and I know MFA programs aren't for everybody, but for me, it clicked being around all those creative people. And finally, for whatever reason, the concept of what story is finally sunk in um, because David Payne, another one of my instructor, instructors and the author of um, uh, Barefoot to Avalon, pounded it into my head. <laughs> uh, and, you know, things started clicking. And my first my first book, Muscle Cars, is actually my my thesis from Queens. So mm. everything really started in my writing career. Uh, because of Queens. Yeah, well, that's great. Well, and it's a low residency pro program. You could do it uh, from where you live. And you're coming to us, uh, I assume, from Buffalo, New York. Is that right? Yep. I'm coming to you from uh, beautiful Buffalo, New York. And you're right. You know, at the time when I I, I, I went to Queens in the low residency program, my, my children were still small. I still had my day job. You know, there's no way I could have gone back and done um, you know, a traditional MFA program at that stage in my life. So it just worked out for me. That's great. Well, well Buffalo, New York uh, was also um, the setting, not only for this book yesteryear, but for uh, Rook, the, the book that uh, we featured previously on this show. And I was wondering, uh, what is it about the city where you live that inspires your writing? Yeah, and I think a muscle cars, uh, my, that short story collection, even when I, when I don't name the location, it's Buffalo. So people who are familiar <laughs> with it, they'll say, oh, Volker's Bowling Alley or, or Forest Lawn <laughs> Cemetery. Um, we know those places. And I, it wasn't anything I did consciously. I just was just trying to write a thesis because um, I had to graduate. <laughs> and those stories emerged. And then I was, you know, revising and revising and analyzing and I said, man, I'm writing about Buffalo and I, I'm really enjoying it. And then I kind of thought about William Kennedy um, in his Albany series with uh, Legs and Billy Phelan's Greatest Game and, of course, Iron Reed, Reed that won the Pulitzer. And he kind of carved out Albany, New York as his literary turf. And I, I just loved those novels of his. And I said, you know what? I think he's on to something. I'm going to carve out Buffalo. Uh, no one's working this part of the state. <laughs> um, and really what inspires me about this city is, you know, it, it, it's such a, a mix of ethnic groups um, that have changed over the years. Uh, South Buffalo still primarily Irish, for instance. All this great architecture still standing right when I'm writing a piece of historical fiction, I can go and sit in the lobby of a Statler Hotel or the Hotel Lafayette. So all that great architecture is here and the history is here. But my family history is also here, too. Mm -hmm. My grandfather and, and my father came over from Greece in the early 1920s. And so a lot of his stories of growing up on Genesee Street in the Greek neighborhood during that time, living above his father's restaurant really affected me. And a lot of them worked their way into yesteryear. Mm. Uh, so the ex-boxer, uh, Jimmy Slattery, for instance, my dad wanted to throw him out of my grandfather's restaurant because he was drunk, bothering the waitresses, trying to eat this one waitress's hair because he was so drunk, <laughs> thought it was cotton candy. That's in my book. Um, my dad's friend, 
uh, a, a Greek man named Leftadios. They called him Lefty. He was a dog thief. And I go, what do you mean he was a dog thief? And he goes, well, it was the Depression. He would steal dogs and <laughs> sell them. And I, well, he's oh, got to go in the book too. Um, and even the the caper, you know, trying to find the lost diamond rings of Jimmy Slattery um, has an element of truth to it uh, because my dad used to hold the rings for another boxer, not Slattery, who would go on a, a drunken binge and he'd go to my dad and say, hey, Ange, can you hold on to my ring? Uh, I don't want to lose it because um, I'm going to be, you know, drinking for the next two weeks. And my dad would hold the ring until he would come back and claim it. And one time he didn't come back. Uh, for weeks and weeks, and my dad didn't know if he should wear it or hock it or sell it. or, or... And then finally, he, he stumbled in my grandfather's restaurant looking for his ring one day, and my dad gave it back and never saw him again. But, you know, those stories that I grew up with um, all made their way into yesteryear. So it's mm -hmm. kind of funny how the influence of the city is just not the physical part, but also, you know, the family part. Well, it's interesting um, about... Five years ago, my wife and I celebrated our 35th anniversary, and we had never been to Niagara Falls, so oh, we came to go. Buffalo, and we got some good buffalo wings, and uh, we went out to Niagara Falls, and mm -hmm. one of the things I noticed in reading your afterward uh, is that uh, one of the characters who I found very fascinating in the book, Stefano, uh, and I may not get his last name. Magadino, right? yeah. Magadino, but, but his nickname in the book is The Undertaker, and you, you explained that his real um, parlor, I suppose that's what they call it, to, at, the, at the funeral home, was in Niagara Falls. And you moved it to Niagara Street in Buffalo for the book. Uh, so tell us about The Undertaker. So the, the, yesteryear is filled with characters who actually lived during that time. It's based on the life of Franz Stryker. Uh, he's the main character. He's the man who created and wrote The Lone Ranger. And I added in John L. Barrett. Uh, he was the a radio actor who was the first person to ever perform The Lone Ranger on the air here in Buffalo and WEBR. And so I thought, well, I have to have those guys in it. And I have to have George W. Trendle, who was the station owner of WXYZ, who would eventually buy the rights to The Lone Ranger. So he's got to be in it. And I thought, well, why don't I just put, you know, some other people who lived in during that era? Um, so Jimmy Slattery made his entrance, uh, uh, and also um, Stefan Ma Stefano Magadino, who was the actual head of the mob, the mafia here in Western New York for decades. And his nickname was The Undertaker because he was a licensed mortician, and he had a he had a couple. Um, funeral parlors. The one in Niagara Falls was his home base, and he had a crematorium in the basement. And the running joke was the only thing working during the Depression is the undertaker's um, ovens, because if he had someone he wanted to disappear, he would just take them in the basement of the funeral parlor and, and cremate them. Um, and that, that's a true story, or, or at least it's, it's legend. Yeah, and it um, also was uh, interesting in the book, uh, or, or sort of terrifying, that he would uh, interrogate um, his uh, suspects, uh, his victims, whatever you want to call them, in front of that hot uh, oven as it was uh, flaming in front of them. 
<laughs> yeah, uh, th- that part was my imagination. Um, <laughs> that's good. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so I thought, man, I have to, that's such a great story. Uh, I have to work that in. Uh, so I did a real, little relocation of, uh, of his funeral home. It's The building's still standing. So I, I drove out to the falls with my daughter one day and, and took pictures to get the exterior uh but yeah he's a real character in the book um and he uh really adds kind of a noir flavor to the book a little bit with the the gangster element well let let me ask let's give give our uh, listeners a little context here for the story yesteryear is kind of based on the true story of Franz striker he's a struggling radio play script writer um he'd eventually as you said create the lone ranger set in buffalo during the early 1930s um he, um, this character, Franz Stryker, real life person too, mm-hmm. he has to overcome lots of obstacles. Uh, in your book, he has to overcome writer's block and gypsy curse, a foil to assassinate Franklin Delano Roosevelt, lots and lots of other things, including, including The Undertaker. Yeah. And as you said, it's populated by these real life characters. I'd like to know a little bit about your inspiration because I was thinking about this when I was going to interview you. The, the book Rook was also based on a real-life uh, person from from an era. Uh, a bank robbery turned out to be a famous mystery writer. Yeah. But, um, you know, in this book, it seemed like uh, you took it a bit further. You even have a little joke in your afterward about how the magical parts of the book are, are real. And, <laughs> and oh, that's so, not a joke. Not a joke? Okay, <laughs> the magic is real. Uh, but, but did this start out as more of a, a rook type book uh were you going to stay closer to or or did you and did it morph into what it ended up being or did you have in mind the whole time that you're going to create this noir type uh novel i i definitely knew it was going to be different than rook um somebody's told me in a bar or at a party that franz striker the, the the person who wrote the lone ranger was from buffalo new york and i didn't believe that person because i <laughs> thought i would have heard about that right it's kind of a yeah. big deal and if you're a writer from buffalo you should know that and then i i looked into it you know and not only was he a buffalo guy he was a neighborhood guy he went to high school like two blocks from where i live was living at the time and wrote the lone ranger just north of me and on Granger Place. And at that time, I was thinking about, you know, what did I want to do next? What writing project did I want to take on? And I I felt writing Muscle Cars and Rook back to back that I felt a little constrained uh, creatively. I thought that the, I thought I could do more. Um, And I just wanted to, after two books, kind of writing in the same style and voice, I just wanted to do something bigger. And I didn't really know what that meant, um, except I felt it. And I was thinking about books that I loved. And I was thinking of Shoeless Joe by W.P. Mm-hmm. Kinsella, which Field of, Field of Dreams is based on. And I thought of The Natural um, by Bernard Malamud, uh, baseball stories, both baseball, no- baseball novels. And I got this mantra in my head that the next novel I'm going to write, I'm going to swing for the fences with these two books in mind. I wanted to create something fun and magical and do myth-making and really just have a lot of fun and just swing away. It was a baseball novel, so swing for the fences. So that meant to me no sentence could be too long, uh, no joke was off limits, give myself complete creative freedom to 
write this story about how Franz Stryker came up with the idea for the Lone Ranger. Um, and so that's what I try to set out to do. I try to set out to write a funny, fun book. Uh, and that was really my only plan. The noir elements, the magical realism, that all kind of creeped in during the drafting of the novel. Mm -hmm. So... Uh, I, it was actually a lot of fun to write, to be honest with you. Yeah, well, it was fun to read too, and I, I was, I was really drawn to this book uh, for the very reason that you said you were drawn to the story. The fact that uh, I didn't know anything about, the, you know, who wrote the Lone Ranger. I grew up watching the Lone Ranger in black sure. and white yeah, on TV, but I didn't know the history. I didn't know how far it went back. I didn't know the radio aspect. And we're talking about the 1930s, so. We're talking about a radio era. We're talking about dark days. Uh, and this fellow, Fran Stryker, uh, and you tell this story, I mean, he overcame a lot of obstacles, not even to get to where he wrote The Lone Ranger, but the fact that the rights were eventually taken away from him and he kept on writing and kept on writing. And I just want, give us some context for this guy and how tough he was as a writer. Yeah, he is really, and again, like you, I didn't know anything about Fran Stryker when I, when I took on this project. Hadn't even heard the name. And what amazed, coming away after doing all the research and writing the book was just what a, a humble man he was and how he carried himself with grace through some interesting career twists. Um, so to give some background, as you said, Fran was a struggling radio script writer. This early days of radio, right? So back in those days, Dramas and comedies were performed live on the radio. Uh, radio stations had their own actors and actresses in-house. They had their own orchestras. And they had, in many cases, their own writers. And Fran was struggling um, financially during the Depression, like everybody else. He had a young family, and he was also taking in about, a, he had took in about a dozen family members, either physically or were supporting them financially because they had lost everything during the depression. So he was under a lot of financial strain. And what he was doing is he was taking old scripts that he wrote for WEBR here in Buffalo and would send them out to other radio stations because those radio stations were starved for creative content. So think about when like Netflix and all the streaming services <laughs> first started. Here's again, radio, new technology. They needed content. They needed programming. And Stryker was saying, hey, I wrote this script. You know, it's part of a 12 part series. You can buy this for $2 a script. And they would in many cases say yes. And so Stryker was repurposing scripts and selling them across the country. And one radio station that was buying about three or four different series from him, scripts a week, was um, WXYZ in Detroit, owned by a man named George W. Trendle. And Trendle had been working with Stryker for several months. And then in December of uh, 1932, he sent him a telegram saying, hey, can you write a, a Western for us? Put in all the hokum, and that was the word he used, all the Western hokum. Uh, masked riders, two-gun bank robbers, a uh, girl tied to railroad tracks. You know, give us a Western. Can you do that? <laughs> and Stryker said, well, of course I can, because two years earlier, he wrote a, a series called Covered Wagon Days, and he took episode number 10, for whatever reason, and reworked it and introduced The Lone Ranger. Mm -hmm. um, and that premiered in Buffalo, 
and then it moved to WXYZ in Detroit, where, of course, it became phenomenally successful. But it wasn't successful right away. It took them almost that full year of 1933 before they even got a sponsor for the show. But Trendle could tell this was going to be a hit, a bigger hit than they ever had. And he knew Stryker's financial situation. So he went to Fran and said, hey, I'll offer you a full-time job. No more of this buying scripts for 2 or $6 a pop. I'll put you on salary, more money than you ever made. You'll have job security throughout the Depression. Um, you write for me. But the condition was you have to sell me the rights to the Lone Ranger for $10. Right. That was amazing to me. Yeah, I mean, uh, Trendle, you know, and, and I always say, and, and, and Stryker's son said this, depending how you look at it, you know, my dad was involved in either the best or worst deal in entertainment history, right? Yeah. So his dad was in a hard spot, right? He had all these family members to support. The, the depression is in its worst years, and somebody's offering him job security. He didn't know if the Ranger was going to be a hit or if it was just going to be another one of those series that died out after you know, 20 episodes or whatever. So he took the deal. He wanted to take mm -hmm. care of his family. And of course, the Lone Ranger exploded. You know, there's mm -hmm. movies, there's books, comic books, comic strips, toys, all those millions of dollars going into Trendle's pocket. Mm -hmm. um, and then in the 1940s, uh, Trendle started saying in interviews and in articles that he created the Lone Ranger. Mm -hmm. And there was even a story going around that Stryker wasn't even brought on board until after the, the Ranger had been on the air for a while. And Fran Stryker, as I said, took this, he was very, had a lot of grace, a lot of class. He never argued with him in public. He continued working for him and writing for him. He created the Green Hornet. He created Sergeant Preston, the Yukon. Uh, they had a professional relationship and he never contradicted him. And in 1954, I believe, Trendle sold the rights to the Lone Ranger for $3 million. Mm -hmm. uh, that was in addition to all the millions he had made off the off the Lone Ranger up to that point. And, of and, course, no, none of the money went to Stryker. Right? Yeah, and, and through this uh, book, you'll find that uh, Stryker was kind of a Lone Ranger himself. It's part of the theme of the book. I mean, he was helping others. He was taking in people. He was <laughs> looking after people that were trying to kill people. And the theme, I mean, you said it in the book that uh, the Lone Ranger came along at this time when um, people needed, they needed him. And I think there was a line in the book, there was someone out there helping those who needed it, someone who righted wrongs. And that just resonated with people at the time. Yeah. And uh, it really took off. Uh, and I think a lot of it was, if you look back at those old radio scripts, it was the Lone Ranger helping the little guy, right? Mm -hmm. The one who was going to get his rights to his mind taken away or his ranch taken away or someone who was had been harmed by people in greater authority um, than they were had greater strength and i think that's the way the american people felt in those early days of the depression and here comes the lone ranger helping people like that so mm -hmm. i think that really resonated with the listeners of the time For all things Charlotte Readers Podcast, check out charlottereaderspodcast.com. You can find a list of all episodes, an alphabetical guest list with links, detailed show notes for each episode, a community blog, and more. We'd love to have you visit. Well, this would be a good time, I think, uh, if you do a little reading from the book. Uh, you could uh, 
set it up if you like. Tell us where we are, any characters that are in it. Yeah, and you kind of set it up, as you said, that Stryker in the novel is kind of a Lone Ranger-like character because my idea for this was I want to write an action story about a man who wrote action stories, and he's going to be the main character. He's going to be the Lone Ranger, and his friend John Barrett's going to be his Tonto, his companion. Um, so it's set up, it's structured. There's not chapters, there's episodes and the episodes have names like the old radio shows. And, um, I want to read the beginning of episode number two called mystery of the phantom voices. And this is where I introduced John Barrett into the story. And as, as I said, John Barrett was a local radio actor here in uh, Buffalo. And when they pilot of the Lone Ranger premiered, he was in that lead role and he didn't go to Detroit and become famous, um, but he was the first Lone Ranger. And this is how I introduce him. Uh, and just to set it up, um, Stryker is walking home in the first chapter and he hears this old radio show that they had reproduced a couple years ago and, and it's coming. He can't, he's walking home and he just hears this. He can't tell where the, this radio show is coming from because he's all alone the night. And it's, it's Barrett back at the radio station. Barrett stood in front of the dead microphone, performing the Covered Wagon Day script. His voice, rich and resonant, boomed across the deserted studio as he delivered his lines. The words rang like struck notes. It was the sonorous voice of a man with broad shoulders, a cleft chin, someone strapping who stood over six feet bootless. Barrett was none of these. He was shorter than most men, with delicate features, pronounced cheekbones, a slender nose, pale, graceful hands that floated when he gestured. Even his mustache was delicate, trimmed precisely like the silver screen actors he idolized. He developed a habit of smoothing the whiskers into place, first the right side and then the left. His hair, the color of Arabian sand, had begun to recede and was pomaded in place. When Barrett entered a restaurant or party, people didn't notice his pencil mustache or retreating hairline or floating hands. They didn't notice him at all until he spoke. Then heads would turn. Necks would crane to see who belonged to that voice that bordered between baritone and bass, who words filled every corner before they pushed at walls, overturned furniture, and demanded to be heard. Surely a voice like that belonged to a talking picture star, a New York Yankee, a hero from the Great War. Barrett had a voice made for radio, so smooth and rich it was destined to be heard by millions. He was certain of it. Buffalo families huddled around their Crosleys and RCA Victors and Zenith Stratospheres, each night tuned to WEBR to hear him read the news or introduce the next program, or star in the comedies and dramas written by Stryker. His voice was his instrument, like Stryker in his Remington or Artie Shaw with his clarinet. He mastered it, learning to modulate volume and timbre, to color tone, to extract emotions from Stryker's words, and send them over airways to the kitchens and living rooms and into the ears of his audience. He tugged tear ducts and pressed passions with mere inflection. His voice made hearts gallop. 
When he delivered his lines, people would turn to their wooden or bake-like radios and stare as if expecting him to stride from the speaker and perform in front of them. He could voice any role, villain, foil, young, old, but was best when he played the hero, and his wondrous phrasing was matched with his character's remarkable deeds. The taller the tale, the deeper his register. And that's, that's, great. that's great. radio actor John L. Barrett. Yeah, and John L. Barrett, you know, TV came along and uh, sort of pushed him out. It's too bad that uh, it took a while for audiobooks to come come into play because it <laughs> sounds like he'd have, been, he'd have made a good living doing that. Yeah, he yeah. ended up being a very successful attorney. He left radio uh, yeah. and had a nice a, a nice life. And, and when he passed away, the, the New York Times actually ran his obit um, mentioning that he was the original Lone Ranger. We have an affiliation with Libro.fm because you can get audiobooks from them, and when you do, you support independent bookstores. If you'd like to sign up with them for your audiobooks, use the promo code CHARLOTTEREADER and claim your free audiobook. Well, a couple of writing life questions before we wrap up. Um, you know, as a writer, I just want to, now that you've spent this time writing this novel and investing a good portion of your life in, in Fran Stryker and what he did, and you saw how he did it and how he overcame rejection. And, and I just wonder, um, you know, in the face of what he went through um, and how he handled it and knowing what you know about being a writer and what's involved and the emotional roller coaster that exists there has been, has spending time with him been good for your own psyche uh, in terms of being a writer? Oh, that's a great question. And no one's, no one's ever asked me that before. I have to think about this answer. <laughs> um, you know, like I said, I was just really taken with the way he handled himself when it became obvious that he made the worst possible business decision. Uh, and again, for all the right reasons. And, you know, in this day and age, when people go off to Twitter or X, as they call it now, and, you know, they have to tweet you know whatever enters their mind or criticize someone striker didn't do that it was a different time and and he would tell people he said you know no one held a gun to my head no one forced me to sign that contract i was a grown man i made a decision about what i was best thought best for my family and i'm just going to stand by that decision and i'm not going to answer the critics or address falsehoods that are out there publicly. And I was really impressed by that. And I think when I think about how easy it is when I see a, a, some, a comment on Goodreads or, or Amazon, and I go, oh man, I want to jump in and tell that person, you know, you got it wrong. Uh, and I think about Stryker and I said, no, you know, be like Fran, bite your tongue, let the work speak for yourself, speak for itself. Um, your job as a writer isn't to defend it, it's to write it. And you wrote it, so let it stand on its own legs. I think that's what Stryker did, and that's what influences me. Yeah, maybe some professional athletes uh, these days who want to renegotiate the contracts they've uh, signed ought to listen to this story as well and yeah. take, a, take a lesson from it. Dif uh, yeah, different you can't, times. You, you can't be drawn in too much by what uh, happens on Goodreads or on Amazon <laughs> in terms of the reviews. I just happened to notice that my... Recent novel, Daily Declarations, which has gotten some pretty good reviews. It got a one star from somebody who called it uh, full of woke. And I was like, uh, okay. <laughs> I guess yeah. you didn't you didn't like the fact that John Adams criticized uh, Thomas Jefferson. Uh, maybe that doesn't fit with your 
idea of history. I don't know. I, I really don't know what, <laughs> where they That's were going funny. with it, but uh, you know, it's it's part of the part of the deal, I guess. But um, just to take this a bit further, um, you um, when you talked about this idea of putting in your stories these things that uh, you had experienced in the past or that you had seen or that are local to you. I mean, a lot of people say, where do you get your ideas? How do you get your ideas? And I'm just wondering, is it always that little grain of truth for you and something you find that acts as a, as a prompt for you to then invest a good deal of your, your life uh, writing about it? Yeah, it actually is. Um, and part of the theme of, of yesteryear is, is just that. Where did Stryker come up with the idea for the Lone Ranger? And the answer, at least the answer I gave, was it was all around him. He just mm -hmm. had to be open to those ideas and pull them together. And that part is fiction because Franz Stryker never had a day of writer's block in his entire life. <laughs> <laughs> right. The man was paid by the word. So yeah. he, he, he never had that. That part was fiction. But the element of where does the ideas come from, I, I think, are true. They're all around you. And often, like you said, they are a springboard into something else that leads you down a path uh, of inspiration or you take that story that my father told me when i was a kid and you put your own spin on it um and you create a character based on what little you know about his friend the dog thief uh, a lot of that are really prompts and i think part of that uh, living in the city surrounded by all the history and architecture and characters i think that gives me a a writing prompt a creative prompt that i didn't have when i lived in south carolina or connecticut or indiana um that was missing and this 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 town seems to stimulate that in me and provide those springboards yeah, I was asking Tracy Clark. She's a award-winning mystery writer from the mm -hmm. Chicago area. I asked her why she liked writing about her home city, Chicago, and she launched into a story about how she'd been riding down the road and saw this culvert and thought, what a great place to bury a body. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> she said, there are all kinds of places like that in Chicago. <laughs> yep. So that's, that's <laughs> probably true for Buffalo as well. Yep. well uh, just to wrap it up, we asked this question. Now that you've got three books under your belt, you've, you wrote for 30 years, getting the short stories, and now you've done the MFA and you've got the books. If you could tell your younger writing self something of value that had you known it when you got started, based on your experience that you've now gone through, what would it be? And it's nothing new. It's nothing uh, unique or uh, an original idea from Stephen Iwano. But uh, what this this job takes, and I think you have to treat it as a job, uh, a wonderful job, is that it's like any job. You have to get up and you have to go to work every day. And you have to write every day, whether it's for an hour, if you only have an hour. I write in the mornings from 5 to 7 before I have to go to my day job. Um, because I'm too tired at night for that creative type of work. But you have to treat it as a job. You have to show up every day. Um, and some days you get 20 words, some days you get 200 words, but every word is another step towards the end. Um, so treat it as a job and, and just be disciplined on how you approach it. All right, that's great. Well, Steve, I want to thank you for appearing today on Charlotte Rear's podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I always enjoy talking to you about books and writing. Yeah, and listeners, uh, 
As always, until next time, read on, write on, and as Hannah says, uh, rock on. (laughs) 